What time is it? It's Valentine's. What time is it? It's Valentine's. What time is it? It's Valentine's. That's right. There's love and fear in the air. Ooh, chocolates abound, me boys. Flowers are raining from the sky. Cupid is going around shooting up people. It's a beautiful day. But the chocolates are filled with blood. No, no, blood chocolates. And My the flowers favorite. and the flowers are filled with anthrax and bees. And bees. bees. <laughs> and oh. Cupid has a AK instead of a bow. Man, this Valentine's Day in 2018, things are getting real crazy. Ultra Extreme Edition. This That's is love right. in Trump's America, baby. <laughs> this is what we got. This is the No Love Deep Web episode <laughs> of the Pod People. <laughs> yes, happy Valentine's Day, uh, Happy everybody. Valentine's. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm joined, as always, by Ben Sheets. I'm Ben Sheets, and I'm snacking on these delicious candy hearts. I got one that said, uh, I'll fuck anything that moves. <laughs> And also Eugene Lundeen. I am also eating candy hearts, but yours look weird, Ben. I think that it looks like you wrote on those. It's clearly ink on those candy hearts you got over there. Custom did, special did, editions. Did you did you send those to yourself oh, though? I I just tried one of Ben's hearts, and these are made out of chalk. <laughs> oh wait, hold on. I gotta hold on. Oh, look, you're look, right. Money's tight. Okay, guys. Ben, you didn't tell us. We we would have got you candy. Is it? Were you eating chalk because your stomach's upset from all the drinking we did during the Super Bowl? Oh yeah, still it's upset a, from a, it's the, a, it's the a two Thomas weeks. Festival. <laughs> well, I mean, we're we know we're a little early on this Valentine's special because that's uh, related to some of our news. Since this is basically the Cloverfield show at this point. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, we've done During, more than enough mentions. Hey, now mentions. that it's out, yeah, we don't have to talk about it until the new one comes out yet again. So, uh, yeah, at the time of this recording, uh, the Super Bowl was last night, the Eagles won, and Tom Brady ah! had to sadly go back to making out with his son. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, oh, what, that's what, a what, hot claim. Just Come kissing over here. his son on the mouth. Just kissing his son on the mouth. It is Valentine's. Lots of time. It is Valentine's after all. Love is in the air. Love <laughs> is in the air. During the Super Bowl, they released a trailer for the new Cloverfield movie called The Cloverfield Paradox. Um, so much for the God Particle and Cloverfield Station. And then they also just released the movie on Netflix after the game was over, even though in the trailer they had a release date for, like, mid-April. It's to disorient the viewers so you confuse them into watching the movie and enjoying it. Exactly. I mean, it was originally scheduled for 420, which right, but the, was yes, funny. Yes, that's right. But uh, the the trailer last night said that it was scheduled for 419, April 19th. But oh. then, but then they just released it last night anyway. Yeah. So um, I, I guess go watch the Cloverfield Paradox on Netflix. We will at some point. The future is not very bright for Cloverfield. Yeah, Paradox, I which mean, is like the worst name they could have chosen. Out of, <laughs> they should have called it the God Station or something instead of choosing those. The it's, God. It's Paradox. really the life of Pablo of movie titles. <laughs> yes, like, but you yeah. know they they gotta squeeze the Cloverfield name in there. Yeah. Um, so help me God part. 
article. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a few days ago that there's supposed to be a fourth Cloverfield movie coming out in October of this year. So this is the year of the Cloverfield, I guess. Didn't you say it was like set in World War Two? Yes, as it's, well? set, it's set during World War Two. <laughs> Apparently, it'll be our our good boys fighting some. I, God, I hope it's not Nazi zombies, but I think it's probably going to be Nazi, Nazi aliens. Okay, <laughs> the true axis of evil. <laughs> um, they're they're saying that their intention for the Cloverfield franchise is to create something along the lines of the Twilight Zone, where the movies don't actually relate directly to one another. It's like a like a shared universe kind of thing, and I. I don't know how I feel about that. I kind of, I certainly appreciate that more than just saying we're going to come out with the same story every right, single time. Right, but, but... But it doesn't seem like from that point on, they really thought of trying to do anything Yeah, creative. I mean, I'm kind of glad they're not doing direct sequels of more found footage. Not all about T.J. Miller survived the first yes, <laughs> movie. I, I agree with you on all of that, <laughs> but... Uh, my, like, my thing is, if they're not really related to each other in any way other than that, like, why keep calling them Cloverfield something except to just create a, a marketable brand? Dollar signs. Exactly. Like, that's, that's, that's all That's the is. only thing it is. On Twitter, there was, someone I follow was like, if Cloverfield drops tonight, I will shit in my pants. I will pull down my pants and shit into them. And literally <laughs> the next tweet after that is, Netflix is dropping Cloverfield pants. Paradox right after the game. <laughs> did did he shit into his pants? I hope so. I didn't right. see them Pit, follow through. That's what didn't happen. He better have soiled his trousers. <laughs> he he delivered a promise to the internet. Oh, he's Who got lies on the internet? <laughs> yeah, the internet is full of very good, honest people. Like yeah. Piers Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, that that ass eating the picture. Ass eating. <laughs> that that is the greatest self own of all time. That dude is like a king at owning himself on the internet. Um, Piers Morgan got really offended that the BBC put up a picture of Piers Morgan eating Trump's ass, <laughs> and he and tweeted the picture. So himself. he tweeted it out because he was so offended by it <laughs> to all his followers and all of the internet. And of course, wait, and of wait, course, wait. now it's a meme. Yeah. <laughs> Who? So, so wait, the BBC sent out a picture of him eating Trump's ass. Yeah. And then he re- why did the and then BBC he and then he tweeted that? it. <laughs> oh with with God. some with some outrage, but let let's not get too far <laughs> off topic. Yeah. That's that's a horror movie. In that's, yeah, that's, that's a that's horror. Something we'll we'll see that by the end of uh, that's a horror movie in and of itself. Um, <laughs> that's a Black right, Mirror episode. So, I think. Um, yeah, what other news do you have for us, Ben? Let's look at uh, our guesses first for God Particle Cloverfield Paradox. Obviously, we can't do box office. It's a Netflix movie. We do have Rotten Tomatoes score guesses. Uh, Matisse, you said 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. <sighs> yeah. Eugene, you said 28 and I said 68 It's still very early, so we only have 40 reviews. The uh, score right now on Rotten Tomatoes is a whopping 19%. I was a naive, hopeful little boy. 
Right. I had my hopes up after ten Cloverfield. After ten Lane, Cloverfield man. Lane, I mean, we should have we should have known that it wasn't going to be good when they did not attach Dan Trachtenberg to it. You know what? I'm still going to give it a shot. Yeah. You know? No, we're gonna we're gonna reserve our judgments. We're gonna reserve our judgments for the moment. But so. yeah, uh, during the Super Bowl, we got some other trailers. Trailer for a new Hulu show called Castle Rock. Seems like it's trying to link all of the Stephen King movie franchises together. Which is crazy to me, I guess, Stephen King and all of his uh, genius. There's a lot of things that tie in between his stories. Oh, yes. He does it really well. I'm not going to I'm, I'm worried the show is going to be way too fan service I... When they mentioned Shawshank in the trailer, I kind of cringe. Oh, Not going to lie. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. It, it could be good. It seems to have some decent people attached to it. Is I that saw... the one that Mike Flanagan is doing? No, 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 he's no, not on that. No, no, no. His next film is supposed to be an adaptation of Doctor Sleep, the uh, oh, sequel, no the way. sequel to The oh. Shining. Okay, huh? Um, shit, which I read earlier in 2017 and really, really enjoyed. So I'm excited about uh, a Mike Flanagan Doctor Sleep. I think he'll do it really well. At least it's not Gerald's game too, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> we probably have to wait a couple of years, but uh, we'll we'll see how that turns out in, in the long run. All right, but yeah, let's. Sure. Uh, Let's talk about some of the other trailers. Yeah, uh, so we got a trailer for A Quiet Place. The new horror film by uh, everyone's favorite office pretty boy, John Krasinski. I feel like he's probably trying to get some footing in his career now that, I mean, The Office has been done for like, what, five years or something? Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's made a couple other movies that just haven't hit. But, he was in that. He was in that Michael Bay uh, Benghazi movie, oh, right? Yeah, uh, yes. thirteen hours. <laughs> I right. didn't see that, but it looked bad. No, but this is he is acting and directing in this one. His wife Emily Blunt stars in the film as well, and the trailer doesn't give us much in the way of explaining the supernatural force, but we know there is a supernatural force that seems to come and attack when you make enough noise. What we've seen in this in this trailer is that the family, they live in basically total silence, as you see, and they go through very elaborate ways to I read, and mask their noise. I read somewhere that the kids are supposed to be deaf, I think. Oh. Something like that? I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. Well, I'm sure that will provide some. They'll have some scene where the kid's whimpering or crying, and they're like, shut up, shut up. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually kind of excited for this oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Just based I, on the trailer alone, like, I don't know too much about John Krasinski as an actor or director because I never was really into The Office and I don't think I've seen him in anything else but this seems to be sort of like a little pet project for him you know a lot of times those kind those kinds of like actor director pet projects can turn out pretty pretty solid so I don't know if he wrote it or not I knew it was a spec script before it's being made into a movie now it's still early I don't remember what they said the release date sometime this, this year was. just yeah. sometime this year so yeah. i i get the feeling that it'll be a first half of 2018 movie i yeah. uh, i don't imagine it'll be a second half and it's weird that at least in the last couple of years uh the best horror movies in my opinion are always first half of the yeah, year yeah I mean, get out came out in february yeah, yeah and it really set the bar incredibly high which it yeah, it was surprising. Usually they release shit horror movies in and, January and February. And in 2016, we had The Witch, 
which I know premiered at Sundance the year before, but it got yeah, its it wide release matter. in like Feb- January or February. I think the uh, Goodnight Mommy was in the first half of the year, at least for its U.S. release. Raw came out wide release last year in February. That's right. That's yeah, right. That's a um, great movie. Yeah. So even though the fall is the time where we get the majority of the scary movies, it seems like the really good, like high concept indie ones that I like so much are always in the first half of the year, yeah. which is nice. It shows, hey, even even the crap months, you can still get some great stuff being made. So yeah. there's integrity in some places. Well, we're we're getting Annihilation later this month, which I'm extremely excited for. Uh, Alex Garland's next film. So. You know, maybe uh, I, I think I think the first half of 2018 is gonna be is gonna give us some good horror movies. I think all the shit's gonna come in like the summer and yes. in the fall. Oh yeah. Usually with horror movies, we get a nice spread of shit throughout the year. <laughs> yes. Let's be real. Okay, that's <laughs> even even 2017. I mean, there were like three franchises that tried to get kickstarted again that all failed yeah all right ben uh what other news do you have okay for us? i have one other story for us uh stephen lang uh the blind guy from don't breathe has and more importantly the the evil colonel guy from avatar everybody, yeah, everybody's yeah, favorite yeah, movie yeah. avatar <laughs> um but he just confirmed that there's a sequel to don't breathe in the works don't Breathe was one of my favorites of 2016. I agree. Fede Alvarez directed it. He did the, the Evil, Evil Dead. Dead remake, which I thought was pretty good, actually. I wasn't as hot on the Evil Dead remake. I, I like the Evil Dead it. remake for what it is. It definitely doesn't capture the spirit of uh, Sam Raimi's version. It's or hard Evil to Dead compare too. it, but... Well, let's uh, uh, let's save this for a future episode because I think there's a lot to talk about in there. But what do you guys think about the idea of a "Don't Breathe" sequel? Well, the thing that interested me about the story is uh, Sam Raimi said uh, it's the greatest idea for a sequel he's ever heard. <laughs> Even Strange. better than Spider-Man Two. Yeah, oh even better than Evil Dead Two. Oh. That's, yeah, high bar, like, high bar. Sam Raimi is the he's, man for sequels, honestly. He's Evil not Dead just two blind. And Spider-Man 2 are not blind, both he's deaf now, first. too. That's true, but he directed both of those movies, and he did not... I don't think he's directing this next one, is he? No, but he, he Alvarez. produced both of them. Right. Well, all I'm going to say is I'm not going to write it off immediately, but I'm a little bit nervous about it. The landscape for horror franchises is fucking garbage right now, and I really liked Don't Breathe, and I thought that it wrapped up pretty nicely, and I don't think it necessarily needs a sequel. So if they do one and it's good, I'm all for it, but I'm concerned that they're just trying to start a new horror franchise that's going to get convoluted and shitty. Right, that's the problem. Yeah. Horror movies, a lot of great ones, but franchises, mm. it, it doesn't work. And I think that's just the context of horror movies as well. Once you expose the monster or expose audiences to the same sort of fear over and over again, they're going to get tired of it. Especially when a, f- a film doesn't necessarily leave itself open to a sequel. 
the ki- the the blind guy doesn't die and and don't breathe. So no, it's but not it's not like, like you expect. Oh, he's gonna. How is he gonna chase these people down? Is he gonna like right, oh, right, 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 walking right. down That's, the street? My like, question is: Are they That's gonna make I'm it saying. a sequel or a prequel? Well, they're cause... saying it might be a prequel, which almost makes me even more nervous because they're talking about it maybe being the story of how he kidnaps how the... he kidnapped the the girl who he blames for the death of his daughter that we see in the but... basement in the movie, but. That doesn't even seem terribly exciting. No, it's like, why Why do, like, I wasn't watching that movie thinking like, oh yeah, I really want to dive deeper into that girl's story. I want to know how she ended up kidnapped. No, like, I just accepted it. Like, it was just yeah. like, oh, this guy's a fucking crazy psychopath. Like, that seemed to be a detail that was, that was like character development more so than anything. And I don't, right. so I don't know, man. I don't know. Like, there's good people working on this, so it has the potential to be really good, but I'm going to remain skeptical for a while until they give me reason not to be you know yeah i i think i sort of feel the same way i really enjoyed the first movie but they don't leave you with anything you want to learn about this character or to see anything else within this world that they set up i think it has potential to take awful decisions but could be good you know did it say if it was the same director yeah yeah it's okay so. so Hey, I always... That's what I'm saying. There's good people involved on it. Him and Sam Raimi, you know, like it's got it's got that potential. But the problem with that is that if it's if it ends up being bad, it's even more of a letdown because of the potential that it had. Right. Well, at least this seems to make more sense for a sequel than something like Sicario 2. (laughs) So at least it's... Yeah, which I'm really angry is happening. Yeah, should not be happening, but that's... (laughs) That's, that's that's a horror movie in its own uh, in its own right. All yeah, right, I think if that is it for our news, we can just yeah. jump into Let's our jump into uh, romance our films. <laughs> love hurts. Love episode. love does hurt. Um, yes. Mm. First movie we watched was uh, My Bloody Valentine. It came out in nineteen eighty one. One. Yeah. It is a Canadian film as well. Yes. About a small mining town. That in is, Nova Scotia. Yeah, Nova Scotia, which I, I didn't know first watching it that it even took place in Canada. And I don't know, is it like, do they say it's Canada or do they try and cover up? They're like, this is Delaware. I mean, they, they never they never explicitly state, but like these people all have very thick Canadian <laughs> accents. So. Wasn't the town they lived in named like Valentine Falls? Uh, or Valentine oh, yes. Bluff. Valentine yes. Bluff. Valentine yeah. Bluff, I think. I, what I thought was interesting, the conception of this movie was basically they wanted to make a slasher film centered around a holiday that had not already been done. <laughs> and so they went with Valentine's Day. So basically, the entire conceit of this movie is uh, a Valentine's Day slasher. <laughs> I feel it succeeds in a couple places. First, the, the idea revolves around this man, Harry Warden. He did something 20 years ago. Uh, there was there was something that uh, has shaken the town, and they haven't had a Valentine's Day dance or celebration for twenty yeah. years, and now they are having one again. But uh, murders have begun to uh, occur across the town, and people believe that Harry Warden is back for vengeance. A heart shaped uh, chocolate. Candy boxes are appearing everywhere with uh, human hearts inside. Uh, yeah. So what we what we learn uh, not 
not too far into the movie, uh, pretty early on, is that on Valentine's Day, 20 years prior to this, uh, in preparation of the dance, one of the one of the miners forgot to uh, check the methane levels in the mine, and there was an explosion that left several miners trapped underground for what was it like six weeks? Yeah, something like, something that, like that. Right? that. By the time they cleared the cave in. Only Harry Warden was left, and he had survived by eating all of the other miners. Which we learn through exposition given by a creepy bartender. Given by Captain uh, Exposition, the bartender. Yeah, right. um, and so Harry Harry blames the uh, the the miners for not doing their job properly because the, they were distracted by the Valentine's dance. So he goes on a he went on a killing spree. Uh, and threatened that if anybody ever, if they ever held a Valentine's celebration in the town again, he would be there. There were like two bosses that went out of their way to leave the mine early so they could go get drunk at the party. Right, right, right. So that's uh, that's the motivation. But this has been 20 years, and he's supposedly been in an insane asylum for 20 years. So there, there, there's the investigation into like how is he out? Like what's happening here? And uh, it takes some uh, unexpected twists and turns. Yes, in a race against time to capture the killer, the police chief has to figure out who, if it is Harry Warden, how and where he is so he can try and put a stop to this before the Valentine's Day dance occurs. Well, uh, after after the first couple of kills, they do, they do cancel the Valentine's Day dance, so right, all the... All the local kids or young adults decide that they're going to hold a party at the mine in, like, the rec room since they can't have their dance. I think they're supposed to be older than high school age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think so. so. Right. I think it's basically just, like, this town's entire economy revolves around the mine, you know, so, like, everybody who lives in town pretty much works in the mine. Right. And I can appreciate that because it seems like horror movies, it's not just teenage that act like morons. You can have 20-somethings doing right. immature dumb stuff, too. Well, and what I what I really appreciate about this movie, too, is aside from the central, like, Valentine's Day conceit, like, the idea to have it all centered around, like, a mine and, like, a deranged mine worker who's, like, killing people with a pickaxe and shit like that. Like, that's, that's pretty creative, you know? That's not something that you would normally associate with, like, love or Valentine's Day. Yeah. So... They don't try to make it, like, too hammy in regards to the whole, like, Valentine's uh, plot line, you know? And And when they they do uh, connect it, it's in, like, a campy, fun way. Yes. Right, they're not, they don't ever say anything like, oh, this dumb Hallmark holiday is just a corporate cash grab. They, right, it seems like this town, er, like, genuinely does enjoy the holiday. Well, right, because they're called Valentine's Valentine's Bluff. It's it's really just an excuse for them, you know? Like, it's an excuse to get drunk and have festivities and shit like that, you know? Which is really all you need. Yeah. I'm sure that there's a town called Canadian Boxing Dayville, and they get lit up on the oh, 26th. I'm sure so. Canadian Boxing Dayville gets <laughs> lit up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they don't have a Thanksgiving, though. Oh, we, we did not mention that this is directed by uh, George Mahalka? Uh, I believe that's how his name is pronounced. I don't know what else he's done. I guess he's a a Canadian uh, director. Uh, yeah, I've yeah, never. I don't know what else he's done. 
I should mention we watched the director's cut. Yes, oh, that yeah. is important to uh, distinguish. It's, it's very obvious what was in the director's cut versus normal because the footage is much grainier <laughs> right, than it, the recut footage. Right, it's um, like, what, nine additional minutes in the director's yeah, cut from the theatrical yeah. release? And it's basically all of the gore. Yeah. But what I will say is this movie stands out in comparison to Halloween and Friday the 13th in the creativity of the kills. Yes, absolutely. They get very creative with what they do in it in comparison to your standard stabby stab, stab stab fair right, early yeah. era slasher movies. And, and I really respect that. I do too. And unlike something like uh, Halloween or uh, Friday the 13th, or Nightmare on Elm Street, there's, there's a, like, an investigation element in this one. Like, who is the killer, really? Because at a certain point, like, we realize, as the audience, like, there's no way it can actually be Harry Warden. And right. so it, it, it comes down to not, like, not so much stopping the killer as figuring out who it is so you can stop them. I don't think you'd be able to do that if we get too much like characterization of the killer you know he wears miners coveralls a gas mask a helmet with a lamp on it and kills kills people with a pickaxe like his his look is all you really get on, right like, well on, even the, the legend of harry warden that they try and build up like the whole like he he turned into a cannibal down in the mines and all that i thought that was that was a bit excessive they might as well like said and then he turned into a rat creature well i mean how else how else would he have survived for six weeks well you know? yeah. well i think that's an issue of just the the way they set him up because then this is something I'll get into when we talk about the remake. I feel like they try and handle that situation and uh, they actually try and turn it into something where I feel like it builds up the character a little better. Doesn't become too absurd or ridiculous. Like oh he became a cannibal in the mines. That's that's a little crazy. Maybe he should have uh, been eating people during the movie. I would have appreciated. I mean that, that doesn't but. that doesn't bother me at all because like they they're trapped for six weeks and in order to survive he has to eat the other miners and they well, don't again, say it's, whether it's the like, fact that I don't find that that tidbit incredibly interesting or it just feels out of place with the way that they they talk about this character. If it doesn't matter, it feels like it's such an extreme point. To put into well, his I mean, I think it did matter enough to send him to the insane asylum. You know, well, uh, I think that's that's a small thing that I'm. I just say with the fact that I don't find the way they built him up because uh, there are a lot of movies that do it. I, you got something like Alien where they don't give any explanation, or you got something like Friday the Thirteenth that does give a whole backstory to the character itself. So I just felt it. It wasn't very interesting. That was only that was my only point. But I mean, that, that's you're right. Fair. The the, I, the kills in this movie do get pretty creative. It's not just people getting stabbed with pickaxes. He shoves one lady in a in a dryer. Yeah, which, at the uh, laundromat yeah. after cutting her heart out, and then they find her in the in the dryer, and she's all like burned up and yeah. right. Yeah, looks and like, like a slim Jim. <laughs> right, and like uh, those effects look really good yeah. too. All the I, effects. Look- I love that sequence when she, uh, you know, discovers the 
the box with the the note with the Valentine's poem. Yeah, you know the the biggest way to add menace to your character is to have them write <laughs> rhymes. Have them do poems. <laughs> and like uh, when Captain Exposition bartender hears the the young people planning their party at the mine, and he's the only one who actually believes in the Harry Warden legend. So he's always like trying to like, oh, he's gonna. You better not do such and such, or Harry Warden's gonna come get you. So he decides to try to scare the kids at the mine by setting up this elaborate, like, Harry Warden puppet that when they open a door, it'll, like, pull a string that has, like, a dummy holding a pickaxe it'll pull it up and he's like setting it up and he's super proud of himself and he keeps opening the door and then closing it and opening it and then then at one point he opens the door and the puppet is gone and the killer's right there (laughs) and stabs him like right through the eye with the pickaxe yeah it was great and like like ben said you can really uh tell what is from the director's cut well it's almost all as you you mentioned too almost all of the things we got from the director's cut are just extended moments of the gore that we get right it seems that in the theatrical release they they cut out the actual moments of like we don't we wouldn't have actually seen any of the kills which makes me wonder if that affected it's uh because i don't know if it was a huge success or anything when it was released but I probably would have found it pretty boring and tame if we did yeah. not get those extended moments of violence. I mean, sometimes I definitely think that leaving things up to the imagination is more effective. But in well, this, but in it's this not case, even up to the imagination. It's just cut down like PG thirteen. Yeah. Someone getting shot without blood splurting out. Well, it certainly those. it certainly was a rating thing, and it was to keep yeah. it was to keep the film from getting like an X rating. Uh-huh. Uh, which is what they were at the t- at the time, rather than NC seventeen. But yeah. like the the, th- the theatrical cut was R rated, but because of the way that the rating system has changed these days, you can do a lot more with an R rating oh, yeah. than you used to be able see to in do. The sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Essentially, the main character is this guy. What's his name? TJ or something yes. like that. He's mm-hmm. the sheriff's son. And he's come back into town recently. Yeah, they uh, keep saying that he went off to the West Coast. The West Coast. Which, if which, it's in Canada. Which I assumed was California until I realized it was a Canadian film. I was like, oh no, you've been off in Vancouver. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's been off on the West Coast doing something or other. Uh, and he's recently come back to the town. And uh, it's, it's with his return that all these kills start happening. So... Nobody ever really, like, outright uh, suspects him, like, accuses him of of committing the murders, but that's what the red herring is essentially supposed to be, is like, oh, is it this guy? Because he's bitter about having to be back in this little podunk town, working in the mine, doing what his dad tells him to. And he has this, like, love triangle... Because he was dating this chick, and then he just up and left without telling her, and now she's dating one of his friends, I guess? Yeah, Axel. Axel. So there's this weird love triangle where he's, like, trying to win back his girl, but she's she's dating Axel, so... And, you know, all that stuff, normally, I would, I would think it's just kind of trite and obnoxious, but I think for this film, it it works pretty well, creating this sort of, like... 
weird dynamic between all of these characters rather than just like oh they're we're they're just a group of friends and we got the slut and the stoner and like the the idiot and like no, but the this jock. Is, this is a mining town, so instead we got the funny fat guy. We got the <laughs> not on screen as much, but more obnoxious funny skinny dude. Yeah, who keeps, who keeps snorting beer through a <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he's almost as bad as the the guy from the 1990s It movie. The one dude who was on Night Court. Like throughout <laughs> the whole movie, you can tell he's ad libbing, just like, hey, fucking, what's up, Chief? Yes. Yeah, like, I swear to God, like, that guy who was snorting beer had one party trick, and he (laughs) only resorted to that. And it was snorting beer. We should mention that that dude just died, apparently. Yeah, he, like, just died. Oh, shit. That was the dude, what? Humphreys. Oh, God. That doesn't mean his character wasn't the most insufferable. Oh, no, his character (laughs) is the most obnoxious in the movie, but he did just die, Um, so uh, rest in peace. Had he been anything else? I don't recognize the name. Uh, okay, damn. Was he I not? Think so. I think I think he was. I think he was actually one of the more famous actors in that movie. Not huh. not like anybody. Well, that would, yeah, not like would anybody explain in this movie his behavior. If because... his standout movie was uh, My Bloody Valentine. Oh, he was in X Men Two. Okay. <laughs> he nice. was in he was in First Blood, the first Rambo movie. Oh, who was? Who's he in the first blood? Uh, Lester. I've never actually. I've never actually seen First Blood. (laughs) It's good. It's very good. Um, Super good. Yeah, he's he's in that. It looks like his four most famous film roles are X Men Two, First Blood, The Uninvited, and this movie, Uh, My Bloody Valentine. So, uh, well, no, it seems like he sort of has a history of being in these kind of like schlocky movies, but he does have a very lengthy uh, IMDb page. Like he's um, been he's been in a lot of shit. So unfortunately, he is not the best part of this movie. <laughs> no, his character is extremely annoying. And one um, thing I'll say, just um, as we mentioned, the the red herring of TJ. One unfortunate thing about this movie, if you haven't guessed it yourself about what we've described of the characters, who you think the killer is, the movie doesn't give you a lot of options because at a certain point, you you decide to yourself, okay. It can't be Harry Warden. Right. It has to be someone else. There's right. no way this haggard 60-year-old man is going around hacking people to bits. And they don't really make you believe that it's any certain characters. So. Right. It basically comes down to, at least for us, we, at a certain point, we're like, well, it's either got to be TJ or Axel. It's one of yeah. the two of them. But what I will say is that the movie does a pretty good job of at least for me like flip-flopping back and forth like who is it because at one point i'll be like oh it's definitely tj and then another point i'll be like oh no well maybe it's axel (laughs) and i'll be like oh no it's tj at a certain point the list of suspects is very small but i think they still do a pretty good job of keeping you guessing until the end i want to emphasize how great that whole sequence where they have all of the coats hanging from the ceiling oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, uh, where the 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 two the guy and the girl go off to like have sex and yeah and the guy goes to get some beer and the girl is being chased around and all the all the hooks are falling down with like the mining coveralls on them and she's just getting really disoriented and stuff yeah. And then she ends up being impaled through the head on 
on one of the shower heads and like the communal shower. Yeah, which honestly I thought was one of the coolest, most creative kills in the yeah, movie. Yeah, no, I thought so too. Like how just... they had like water coming out of her mouth through the shower head. Yeah, yeah. that was that was a little silly, but I enjoyed that. No, I thought it was great. I, like all the kills are are pretty spectacular, and the guy who goes into the kitchen and there's the big pot of boiling water filled with oh, hot dogs. Yeah. He's like, "Ooh, hot dog!" And then he just gets <laughs> his head shoved into the pot of boiling water. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I like how they don't rely on jump scares either. Yeah, like, all, all the like kills none. are creative, and yeah, there's not no real jump scares. I mean, things happen unexpectedly, sure. But I mean, this was like the early '80s, sort of before jump scares. Yeah, what, were... like when when did that even start? Like jump scares just as a thing? I don't know. Like there's def there were definitely jump scares prior to that. Like the. The most notable one I can think of is in Alien when the oh, the captain yes. is in the uh, oh you're yeah, absolutely right is in the is in the the, in the, air ducts. the air ducts. But as much as I usually hate jump scares, I find that one still oh, well, extremely that, yeah. that one has build up extreme yeah. like the build up to it is nuts. But we'll we'll I always I, think of that and uh, the end of the first Friday the Thirteenth movie. Oh um, yeah, when uh, Jason comes up from the wall. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. grabs the girl in the canoe. Yeah, that's right. Um, at a certain point, the a few of the main characters decide to go down into the mine because they're drunk and the girls want to see where the guys work and whatever. It's all really pretty stupid, but it, it, it does serve as a great way to get them into a really fucking awesome location for the the rest of this movie. Right, because this was actually shot in a mine. In an town. actual mine, yeah, yeah uh, in Nova Scotia and I some of the I saw that some of the places they were filming in in the mine were like 900 feet below ground, which oh my is god. Which is crazy. They had to take in like special lighting equipment that didn't that didn't have like any sort of spark because there was the, a legitimate danger of starting like a methane explosion, like That's shooting insane. in the mine. I also saw that when the town, uh, which I can't remember the name of, it's a, I guess it's a pretty famous mining town in Canada, but um, Coal Town, Coal Town. Uh, <laughs> when they found out that uh, this film would be made in their town, they spent fifty thousand dollars, like. Cleaning up the whole town, repainting the mine, like doing everything, making everything nice and pretty. And so the film production gets there and they're like, well, shit, the reason we picked this be is because it had this sort of like run down, dilapidated look. So then the production spent 75,000 additional dollars re-dirtying the mine, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> which is which is crazy. That's movie efficiency right there for you. But eventually, down in the mine, the characters all end up being uh, separated and uh, hunted down one by one by the killer. And like I said, it goes back and forth. Like, is it Axel? Is it TJ? Before we get into spoilers at the end, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Or should we just talk about the ending? Um, they did a good job dirtying up the mine. Oh, yeah. It looks it gross. It looks very authentic. I love the sequence where the killer is taking out all the lights one by one. Oh, yeah. In the mine shaft. Yeah, where he's just like Iconic. walking. Yeah, that is really a great moment. And he's walking down the, the mine just shaking. 
shattering the light bulbs one at a Again, time, so it's getting darker. Something and darker. they recreate in the original, but in the remake, <laughs> yeah, the remake, yeah. yeah. To, uh, to lacking yeah. success. But yeah, well, we're gonna get into all that. In we'll just get a into second. that soon enough. Yes. Well, I, I forget exactly the moment when we realize that it's uh, well, because it's Axel. TJ and their love interest, all three of them at a certain point. Sarah, right? Sarah. Sarah, yeah. They're all running away. They take a turn. TJ and Sarah are behind Axel, and they, they come up on the turn, and they look down at this puddle of water and a broken uh, rail uh, to make you think that he fell in the water, and I guess he's drowned, so they leave him there. Which, for me, at that point, it was such, like, a deliberate setup or an attempt at misdirection that it just sort of really clicked for me at that right, point. Right, it's like, but, oh, Axel has been killed by something other than by the killer. tripping you know? in water, yeah, and it's by not tripping, like... <laughs> yeah, by falling into, like, a pool of water yeah. in the mine. <laughs> well, <laughs> I feel like they were trying to be cyclical with it to the point where it's super heavy-handed. It's like, the original killer got left behind by the people oh, yeah. he trusted, oh, no. too. Oh, God. Yeah, I, so, I didn't even read into it like that I didn't read into shit. it that way either, but right, I... But, uh, once uh, TJ and Sarah they they run out, or the you know Harry Warden figure comes out, attacks TJ. He struggles with him, grabs a as if we haven't mentioned before. He's in a whole gas mask, minor getups. So. I, yeah, I think I mentioned that earlier. Yeah, he rips off the mask, and then that's when we find out it's Axel. And I thought the love triangle part maybe he's just super envious of TJ, and so he's gone crazy. And snapped. Well, I thought I thought, was... I thought he was going to try to frame TJ because TJ's just come back into town. I thought that he was going to be like, oh, I, he's trying to. No, that would have been cool. He's trying yeah. to get like TJ arrested so he can have Sarah all to himself. That would have been fine. But then we get a <laughs> flashback. And yeah, discover we, that we find out that he, that Axel, as a kid, was the son of one of the uh, bosses at the mine that Harry Warden murdered twenty years ago. He was hiding under the bed, and, and he saw yeah, he saw Harry Warden kill his dad and rip his dad's heart out. He got blood all over his face. So that's the real reason why. So so then he's just crazy because childhood trauma. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, uh, a cave-in happens and, like, crushes his arm, and so he... Oh, but before that, we get a, a wild scene. I've never seen something like this in a film. It's the final confrontation between Axel and TJ. They start up a one of those little, like, uh, carts... That go on the rails, moving people back and forth. Oh, I think God. that's I think that's actually before the reveal that <laughs> Axel's the killer. I think that, Is yeah, I think so. But oh, where sure. they're yeah. where they're taking the cart up the incline. Right, out of and the they're mine. fighting each other. Uh TJ's got a shovel and Harry Warren's got the pickaxe and they're just having a duel with yeah, each other. Yeah, on, a, they... on the on a very slow moving <laughs> mine cart. It's like a, it's like a, a less high octane Indiana Jones. Yes, yes, exactly. It's <laughs> so speed, but the speed is is five miles an hour. <laughs> hey, this is Canada, so use kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's such a weird thing. I don't know if I've seen because there's always that moment where yeah, the the protagonist is running away from the villain or trying to not get killed by them, but it's never really come down to just a clashing between weapons, well, right? Of swords and it's 
it's something I didn't know I wanted in a movie until they did it. Until, I, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I think it was great. What I, what I do really like about this movie is that the killer's not so much uh, an unstoppable force as he just, like has an advantage because he he has weapons you know right like you you get the impression that like you can you could defeat him if you're prepared enough because he is just like a just a guy you know right i guess seem to have a little bit of slasher teleportation a little bit yeah where he sort of just appears places where (laughs) where they where they need him to be but it's not too heavy-handed yeah um, but so the very end is after their final fight, part of the mine collapses uh, with Axel on one side and TJ and Sarah on the other. Axel's arm is crushed in the rocks. And uh, as the cops show up and start trying to dig him out, he very, very quickly with his pocket knife cuts his arm yeah, off. His whole arm. His off. whole entire arm in the span of like 30 seconds. He just Which like also, saws it right off. I thought that was a, a cool little character thing just on him. Like he was so determined and insane that he just chops his arm right off. Yeah, he and, doesn't hesitate. And then he it ends with him uh stumbling off down one of the mining tunnels. Cackling uh, something. Cackling saying Sarah, will you be my bloody Valentine? <laughs> something like that. Yeah, it's it's a they I think they went a little overboard with trying to make him appear crazy at the end. I think that was a little right, bit having him cackling was kind of fun, not gonna yeah. lie. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think I think it was at this point, uh, they were just trying to wrap up the movie, giving yeah, it the absurdity yeah. by like, this truly was my bloody Valentine, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, I I think that that ending was uh, pretty dumb. I guess. Yeah. Well, they were yeah. obviously trying to set themselves up for a sequel, which. This never ended movie, up yeah happening. this movie never ended up it wasn't a it big was. success or anything no so. no no no. it definitely doesn't have the same legacy as a lot of other slasher movies right but, but i think part of the problem is a cult hit and i think uh a deserved cult classic status because there's a lot of really good uh horror elements in this like it's right. a pretty damn good slasher yeah. movie uh some of that i think does come down to just the the character harry warden himself not being terribly interesting not not the character is not memorable it doesn't it's not the kind of character that you build a horror franchise around like michael myers or freddie or jason no because those those are sort of like clean slates you know honestly i'm glad my bloody valentine doesn't have a whole slew of sequels because i don't think it needs it i like i like they would have been diminishing returns without a doubt the one thing I do like about the ending is that Axel gets away, is that the killer gets away yeah. and he just sort of disappears into the mines. And I mean, realistically, he probably died not long after that. <laughs> he, he just bled yeah. out. Because he just cut his whole fucking arm off <laughs> yeah. and, and there's he has no medical attention. So he probably just went around the corner and died. But I, I like that they leave it open-ended in, in that way, but I'm glad that it didn't spawn a whole shitload of fucking sequels. I feel like if they would have ended it, it with him just getting arrested, it would have felt like a Scooby-Doo yeah. episode. And they would have ended it all with like, but why did he do it? Who knows? I would have gotten been, away I, with it if it wasn't for you, you meddling fucking, kids. You meddling, you meddling Canucks. 
Uh, should we rate this? <laughs> yeah, sure. If uh, Eugene's not gonna cough yeah, right, God, to death I'm over sorry. Her. I'm, I'm. I guess I'm just dying. Jeez. I guess so. Well, well yeah, this we should. Real we should definitely finish it up before yeah, right, Eugene before dies. We should uh, snort some beer. I think uh, that'll help. Am I supposed? Is my lung supposed to look like this? I just coughed up a little bit of lung. It yeah, I think weird. that's a pretty normal yeah. looking lung. Just like shove it back nice in there. Nice and brown. It's ashy. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, shove it back in. Okay. Just, yeah, just shove it back in there. Okay. Um, uh, I well, guess. I guess you can start, Eugene. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, I as I've said, I don't find the character or the way they build them up. It's certainly nothing as iconic as Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. Outside of that, if if it existed in a vacuum outside of other horror movies, I'd say it's it, it's effective. It's done well. It looks pretty good too. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned, the kills are pretty creative. But I think it just suffers from a lack of any sort of tension throughout the film. I wasn't uh, completely bought into the uh, which one is it between TJ and Axel. Maybe not if I didn't know who it was. I just didn't find either choice entirely captivating, uh, especially with the way they try and explain the reasons why he did it were yeah. were unnecessary when they already could have explained it with things they set up already. So for that, I'm going to give it a three out of five. Definitely worth checking out. Go Canada. <laughs> yeah, go. Um, I, I feel pretty similarly. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a solid film, you know. It doesn't try to do anything too out of the ordinary... Uh, aside from its setting, which I really like a lot. The killer is just kind of, uh, yeah, I agree with you, not super interesting. It's more about the mystery behind the killings rather than the killer himself. The the effects are great. The kills are really creative. There's some awesome gore, but that's some stuff that we would not have without the director's cut because, as you can tell from the degraded footage, like... All of the actual, like, money shots were (laughs) cut out of the theatrical version. Um, So I'm glad we watched the director's cut, but that fucking ending is just so dumb, and Axel's motivation is just so dumb when they could have done something smarter without much more effort, you know? Uh, So for that, I'm going to give it a 3.5. Well, I have to give it a lot of props for how creative the kills are. Uh, unlike a lot of slashers of the time, like I said before, we're not getting, you know, stabby, stab, stab kills. We're getting stuff a little more creative than that. And, you know, for its time especially, the gore is really stand out. You know, it's a lot more gratuitous. Granted, we watched the director's cut, which I have to say, if you're going to watch this movie, check out the director's watch cut. Watch the director's I'm cut, I'm looking on yeah. IMDb, and the runtime difference is apparently only three minutes. Oh, really? Surprisingly. But, yeah, if you're seeking this movie out, make sure it's 93 minutes long. Yes. Uh, yeah, now we're 33. You want those extra uh, few minutes. Yeah, it yeah. Really, get those it money really shots. adds up, you know? Um, but, yeah, I, I, uh, there's definitely shortcomings to the movie. I thought a lot of the high school characters were kind of insufferable or um, college aged whatever yeah, they were yeah whatever 20 right. something yeah 20 something the, the the kids quote unquote yeah <laughs> uh they were 
kind of insufferable. I liked, but... I liked the big fat guy with the walrus mustache who was cooking <laughs> food on uh, on an exposed car oh, engine. Oh, yes, the, that's right. In the junkyard. Yeah. I liked him a lot. He survived a lot longer than I expected yeah. to. Um, I have to say it was a pleasant surprise when I first saw this movie, though. I had, came into it with very low expectations. And, you know, I think it deserves its cult status. So I'm going to sure. give it a four out of five. I think uh, definitely check out the unrated version. Yeah, it's oh, worth yeah. it's worth the watch for sure. So that gives My Bloody Valentine 1981 a average of 3.5 pods out of 5. Uh, nice little cult hit, worth the watch. So moving on, we're going to be talking about My Bloody Valentine 3D, the 2009 remake of the film we just discussed, uh, directed by Patrick Lussier. Has he done anything else of note? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He he wrote Terminator Genesis. Yeah, that's right. That's right. When and we saw his name, I thought he was connected to Saw, but I was totally wrong. No, and he was also the editor on Scream. Yes. Is- oh, yes. That's right. He's like a Wes Craven collaborator. Yeah, and he and he also did uh, Drive Angry. I think. <laughs> um, yes. He's so he's all, mostly all over the place. It looks like uh, looking at his IMDb, he's an editor. He's, he's mostly an editor. <sighs> I feel like I'd fucking need a drink to talk about this movie. <laughs> um, but it was actually a success in the box office when it came out. Yeah. It uh, it performed pretty damn well considering it a it's a movie based on a film from the 80s that, that nobody's ever well, heard of. Also, I feel like we should contextualize it a little bit. It came out in 09 in the peak of the 3D craze, yes. and it was the first oh, real 3D horror movie we got at the time, I yes, think. Yes, it was the first R-rated movie to use the the real D technology. Yeah, I can't think of any... I mean, after that, we got some 3D horror movies. I mean, it's not the first... Like Saw 3D. It's not the first 3D horror but, movie, period. Well, like, no. Like, uh, fuck Fucking Amityville 3D came Amityville out. Amityville 3D, <laughs> uh, Jaws 3, Jaws, yeah. Jaws 3D. I fucking hate 3D so so no, so and much. And they do the same damn things. And yeah. every 3D, they have shit flying at you on the screen. And they have someone's <laughs> hand reaching up super close. They it's really awful. have to emphasize that it's a 3D. Movie. And, it, right. and it has not aged well uh, watching it not in 3D. I just thought that this is also the the same year that fucking Avatar came out. Yep. Oh Which God. makes sense. Which you know? makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But also thinking just like how much, as much as I hate Avatar, how much better it looked than this movie. Here's a question I have for you guys. While there's some definitely obvious 3D shots as a whole, I don't think it felt like a 3D movie. No. And uh, problem- which makes me wonder, since it came out the same year as Avatar, did they like stick in those 3D shots deliberately after the success of Avatar? I don't think so. But I think that... Uh, sort of on that point, I agree that the 3D in there must have definitely been done because they realized at a certain point 3D was big. It also means you get like double the amount because of the tickets. So right. even if that's, that probably helped its success, honestly, yeah. the fact that it was in 3D. That's the same thing with 
This uh, came out. Well, but this came out before Avatar. Oh, it too. did. This came out on January sixteenth, two thousand nine. In fuck you, Whoa, it's January. What? Dumping ground. How the f- Avatar came out in like the fall. Right. So <laughs> I guess as we were talking about, the best horror movies come out in the first half of the year. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely oh, in that man. fuck you, it's January dumping ground. And so yeah, I don't think the three D was an added gimmick later. And I also didn't think that because there are a lot of shots where there's not something particularly like 3d coming at the screen but where it's obviously the actors in front of a green screen and there's no reason for that to be other than other so than... they can create the depth because oh, yeah. I, I there was some bad Shit. cgi well right because i because i kept looking at it and i kept being like are they in front of a green screen why why there's no reason they couldn't have shot that on location and then after thinking that like three or four different times i'm like oh Oh, it's so they could create the illusion of depth in three D. That's why the biggest times they did that were like when they were outside at the mining yep. place, or when they were on the mine cart, and you could tell yeah. that they were just like in a cart, and then the moving uh, green screen background behind them. Ugh. So this movie stars Jensen Ackles of Supernatural fame as a guy who comes back to his hometown after. Ten, a 10 year absence in order to sell his father's mine and basically put everybody in the town out of work. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so obviously everyone in the town fucking hates him. And they have, only at certain points in the movie though. Some, right. Sometimes people really think he's a good guy. Yeah, they have no consistency with the way the town feels about him. And no. for the re- the reasons why as well because first it's that he's selling off the mine. Oh, you're going to take away the lifeblood of all these people in this town. But there's a scene, he's at a bar, and at this point, the killings have already started. And then they blame him for the murders that are happening. They don't even mention the mine being closed down. Right. Well, they because similarly with the, with the original, the killings start up right when he's returned to town after a long absence. Before we get into that, we should talk about the intro yeah, in, so in relation oh, yes. in relation to the the originals cuz cuz we still have the Harry Warden uh, right story. Yeah, so we should mention that in the first 10 minutes of the movie they start with these kids like Partying at the mine. The very, the very beginning. The, is the that opening montage. Yeah, okay, true. Yeah, we get a killer montage. We get we get the opening credits talking about uh, Harry Warden killing a bunch of people in the mine because of an explosion that trapped him in there, and that he's been in. But afterwards, he's in a coma, and that. It was because of a mistake that Jensen Ackles' character made. Yes. Which, if you aren't familiar, he's one of the dudes from Supernatural, the one without the long hair. Right. Which I don't know the other. Which, uh... I don't know their actual names. Fun, fun, fun tangent. Uh, yeah, he's (sighs) Dean, Dean Winchester. I used to be a big Supernatural fan. (laughs) Um, him and his co-star in Supernatural, Jared Padalecki, were both in 2009 in remakes of famous slasher films. Oh, really? What Jared was... Padalecki's the main guy in the Friday the 13th remake. Oh! I still haven't he? seen oh, that fuck. remake. Yeah. So, uh, it's pretty bad. 
So yeah, we get this in in uh, newsreel form where the where we're seeing newspaper articles and the letters are flying at the screen. Oh yes, 3D, 3D. like uh, a newspaper in the Harry Potter world yeah. or something. Right. So Harry Warden killed a bunch of people in the mine. He's been in a coma, and then the first scene we get is one year later, which I was like, okay, they're only doing it a year later instead of twenty years later, like in the original. So that's weird. And uh, Jared Padalecki and his girlfriend and their friends or whatever go back to the mine and they're like partying. And all of a sudden, Harry Warden shows up because he's woken up out of his coma. Yeah. Right. Well, well we do get a hospital scene. Yes, too. of him waking up. <laughs> Oh my god, and he kills like everybody yeah, in the entire hospital. Massacred. Just like an absolute over the top massacre. Like he's no exaggeration, kills every single person in the they, fucking hospital and they paints show the wall him, with their blood. They show him first waking up and then coming uh getting closer to one of the nurses, getting ready to strike, and it cuts away to the uh, the police chief who's investigating it, and they pan throughout the room, and there's just bodies laying everywhere. With their organs and shit pulled out, like the walls are absolutely painted Which in blood. They're already setting a precedent. Harry Warden is not a real person. Yeah. <laughs> Harry is. Warden is either the quietest man alive or fucking Usain Bolt running from room to <laughs> well, room. Right. The, funny, the funny thing, too, is when they show, when they pan the uh, show the shot down the hallway and there's just like a dozen bodies in the hallway yeah. it's like how did he kill all of these people yeah. without being like subdued or something uh. and so then uh we cut back to the party at the mine and this dude one guy like scares his friend with like the gas mask and he's like oh who did you think I did you think it was Harry Warden and immediately after saying that actual Harry Warden shows up and pickaxes him through the fucking head right through the eye right through in the a eye. nice little callback to the uh, the original and of course in true 3D fashion um <laughs> Yeah, and, we get the eye sticking right out at us. And then so actual Harry Warden goes on a killing spree in the mine, <laughs> Which killing again, all we of see, these people. Yeah, because these, uh, these group of friends, they were deeper down. They start running away, and they're passing by all the other kids that were partying, and they're all dead. They're all laid out everywhere again. Right, so at this point, Harry Warden has killed like 100 people already <laughs> in the span of like 15 minutes. Right, uh-huh. and this was something I had mentioned. I asked actually liked the idea he didn't turn into a cannibal that he killed these people when he was caved in the mines to conserve air which I think played into more like he's just a a very selfish or you know just like evil sort of guy yeah, to do something asshole. like that but then they well, in, the, in the original in the original they don't imply that he murdered and ate his uh the other miners who are trapped with they implied that he ate their bodies after they had died in order to stay alive oh um, really I, I i had assumed that yeah no 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 they didn't oh, imply they, they didn't died. imply that he went on the killing spree while he was in the mine the killing spree came after he had been trapped for six weeks eating the corpses of his friends. Huh. But so, whatever, that's besides the point. So the only people who end up escaping from this, because Harry Warden is trying to kill Jensen Ackles... The, the four main friends who we see at the beginning, like Jensen Ackles, his buddy Axel, uh, and then their 
respective girlfriends, I guess. Yeah. And the and the cops show up, shoot Harry Warden a couple of times in the back, and he's like a Frankenstein monster who is unstoppable, I guess. He's on hella painkillers. He's on hella painkillers. And also they're the worst shots. <laughs> yeah, and so he stumbles off into the mine, and they chase him, and then it cuts to ten years later. Yeah, so, just which immediately. Is, which is just absolutely baffling to me. It's already right off the bat way over complicating the plot which does not stop at any point throughout this movie whereas in the original it's just like oh he was trapped for a few weeks went on a killing spree and then was put in an insane asylum they had to have him kill people first then be in a coma then wake up and kill a bunch more people and then escape slash maybe be killed and then 10 years later why yeah, it's a real mess. They all look the same anyway, so... Right, and before they cut ahead, we, we get the uh, the shot of Jensen Ackles with his face splattered with blood that is basically the exact same shot of Axel as a little boy getting the blood splatter on his face yeah. after his dad is killed. So we were all just immediately like, oh, so Jensen Ackles is the killer. Like, right. <laughs> and this is, again, it's, uh, it's something that they bring over from the original. It suffers. They really... Don't try and build up another choice. I mean, they do try and build up Axel as well. Yeah. But as we mentioned, it seems so clear to us once the story got it going. And again, if it's just between those two, I still didn't find that very exciting. Well, this is... This movie, the plot is an absolute mess. Yeah. <laughs> For the most part, it's telling a similar story. But this is one of those, it's like a real super cynical take on Valentine's Day as a whole, I think. I think they even yeah. mentioned something yeah. about it being a Hallmark holiday. Well, there's so. there's not that much Valentine's-related stuff not in really, this movie, no. aside from like the boxes, with uh-huh. the candy boxes with the heart and that in one, it. There's, there's the one chick... When Jensen Eccles gets into town, he passes by a hotel room, and there's some, there's a couple having sex, and it's after, one of the it's one of the girls, yeah, it's from one of the, the girls from the beginning having and, sex with some Steve Austin looking <laughs> yeah, apparently motherfucker is the writer of this. He's the movie. screenwriter. He's the screenwriter. <laughs> the, yeah. the fucking stone cold Steve Austin looking motherfucker. He looks like, and as we mentioned, he looks like the kind of dude that would uh, write something like My Bloody Valentine, yeah. right, and. All I can really say is this plot is so convoluted that I cannot make a whole lot of sense of it, so I don't think we need to go yeah. too heavily there, into plot. Really, no. There's Other elements than, that I think we need to talk absolutely, about. Absolutely, but let's let's lay out let's lay out the basics. Uh is it's, that I Ac- mean well Axel, his friend Jensen Ackles' friend that escaped the mine with him. He's the police chief now. That's important. Yeah. He's married to Jensen Ackles' old girlfriend, Sarah. Who's so uh, they, played by Jamie King, who was in uh, Sin City. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So so the the love triangle element is is still there. And that these killings are happening right after Jensen Ackles has come back into town and he's selling the mine so people hate him. Uh, that's basically all you need to know plot-wise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really um, good. One thing I want to mention that we were talking about a minute ago was how bad the fan service callbacks yes. are in this movie. Every time they bring back, you know, an element or a shot from the original, but they take the context out of it. Yes. So it 
totally loses its teeth. One thing, they have the heart-shaped boxes and they do the thing with the human heart in them, but they only do it once, if I remember, in the remake. And in the original, they actually use it as a point. Like, it keeps recurring. The police chief, he sees... It's part of Harry Warden's M.O. I thought that scene was one of the funniest scenes in the movie, too, because his assistant just brings him this bloody like yeah, valentine's box she, yeah she's like she's sheriff like, someone for you someone sent you a valentine <laughs> and he touches it and it's all bloody it's like she brought it yeah. in and did not realize that it was she didn't even think blood. twice she's like oh must be some jelly donuts in here <laughs> bad callback right there we don't really get it again we get the the scene where uh we find out that the dude has like a ton of empty heart-shaped boxes in his, in his house. house. Yeah. Well, they they find that in Axel's old house that is like in the woods where he goes to bang his mistress. Yeah. It's just like this old abandoned ratty house with a mattress on the floor and I guess a, a closet full of empty heart, heart-shaped boxes. Yeah. This whole plot is like stupid misdirection trying to confuse you into thinking, well, either Harry Warden is a Michael Myers style Frankenstein monster who actually is back and killing people. It's Jensen Ackles or it's Axel and they go way out of their way to really make it confusing by doing things that don't make any sense. Yeah, so we should mention after Harry Warden ran off, they they go back to that later in the movie to yes. describe how they they eventually got him and killed him yes yes and and buried him with in his suit with his pickaxe in the in the woods and didn't tell anybody in the shallowest grave right yeah the the cops who shot him in the first place then for some reason decided to keep it a secret that they followed him into the mine and did actually kill him and they try and make it sound like oh these guys took the law into their own hands these vigilantes and it's like no he killed a bunch of people they were in their right (laughs) they were were the law they were absolutely (laughs) yeah they were the law they they weren't vigilantes they were the (laughs) cops jobs doing their jobs yeah. God, yeah, well, it was so dumb. We should we should mention when uh, Jensen Ackles goes to the mine the first time and he sees Harry Warden, I say that with air quotes, and he like locks him in this little cage oh, God, yeah. and then kills one of the other miners and then disappears. So Jensen Ackles is telling everybody that Harry Warden is actually alive and that's when the cops are like, no, we killed him and buried him in a shallow grave. And then they go out to the grave with uh Sarah for some reason like why is she with them (laughs) she's not I don't know why I don't know why she's so interested in all of this no they they go out into the into the woods and see that his grave his very shallow grave is empty so it's like oh did he come back as a zombie or whatever oh the other really fan servicey thing they did was when uh uh they kill the maid and put her in the washing or in the dryer it's like, yeah. oh, 
hey guys, remember the the killer with the lady within the dryer in the first one. Also, like the fan service in this movie really confuses me because I guarantee the people who went to see this movie and who loved it have never seen the. Oh original. no, absolutely, not. absolutely. Yeah. Like who? Like who's their audience? <laughs> well, it's obviously teenage kids. It's it's know? it's laziness from a writing standpoint because the the fans of the original, the cult fans are going to be insulted by this movie. And I was. I was insulted by this movie. Like, this is a movie that insults your intelligence. But we have to remember that there are a group of people who don't care about the substance of a story or the coherence behind a story as long as they provide enough violence or tits, as this movie does. Oh and they're God, called the general yeah. public. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's The that. ones that paid $100 million to see this film are the ones who... it's a, It was advertised as a 3D movie, so a lot of them just... Probably didn't give a fuck right. about yeah, and we, the the nudity in this movie is excessive. Yeah, yes. we should talk about that TNA scene <laughs> with uh, Steve Austin. Yeah, so he's fucking this girl right in this motel room. He leaves the the window like yeah, wide open the, for the everyone curtain, to see. The curtains open. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, she finds out that he's been uh, filming their bang sessions for his own personal uh, jerkin' it use later. So she goes out to confront him at his truck, fully nude. Yeah. Fully nude. Doesn't grab a robe or anything. Well, okay, just... I, I looked it up because I was curious. Apparently, the reason that she's naked for this entire extended scene <laughs> is because when she... In the script, she wrapped a sheet around herself to go out and confront him, but every time they tried to film it, she kept dropping it. So they would have to start over. And at a certain point, she was just like, fuck it, I'll just do it naked. (laughs) And so that's why. Well, we should mention this is a Dimension movie, which is under the the Weinstein Company. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, so. at least it was her idea, so they we can't say that they were like exploiting her. But yes, that is, which I, I I appreciate that fact because when I first right. saw it, it's like, oh god, this poor was, actress has to walk around nude. Yeah, it just felt whole, sleazy. Like, full, yeah. like <laughs> full frontal nudity. No, the like, fact she was on board with it, it's like, hey, that's great. That yeah, whole scene just idea. felt so sleazy. To it me, did, you know. It did, yeah. So Steve Austin gets killed by the pickaxe killer, and then she gets... That should have been the pickaxe killer. <laughs> that's what he is, basically. What What's his name? Harry Hole? <laughs> Whatever. Harry Mineshaft. Harry, Harry Mineshaft. His name would be better be Harry Hole, because he, the, the yeah, right. is a yeah, hole yeah. in the ground. Oh, but yeah, God. so then she, gets up, she ends up being chased around for like five minutes before she's finally killed, and... And the point of all of this is just so when Axel is looking, is watching this tape to figure out, like, try to find some evidence that he sees Jensen Ackles walking by the window in, like, the reflection from the... Like, that's that was the whole point of that entire sequence is just to put Jensen Ackles at the scene of one of the, yeah, of one of the tales. That's and, what, hey, to have some, some good tits in here because... I guess there was a certain point where horror movies just had to have boobs in them. But that's that's the thing that is mind-boggling to me, is that, like, they had to cut out the kills in the original one just to get an R rating, and this has 
a scene of a young gal running around fully nude, showing everything for like five minutes, and it just gets an R rating on its own, you know? Yeah. Like, that's it's just crazy how much like times have changed and how we're so They're the level. sort of desensitized to everything right. now, you know? Like, not that there's anything wrong with nudity, and I'm glad that it was her idea rather than Harvey Weinstein's idea. Because then it would have it does feel it does feel very very sleazy. Yeah, and if she's you know if she's comfortable enough to do that, like more power to her. But it's still there's not enough context for that for it to not feel sleazy. Like the average viewer is not going to think like, oh, that was the actress's idea. They're just going to think like this poor girl. Well, just no, like the we average, did. The average viewer is going to think, ah, tits. Oh yeah, yeah. tits. Yeah. Oh, and kill her. Kill her. <laughs> and it feels very of its time in yeah, there's, <laughs> the there's late a, 2000s. Yeah, it's late 2000s. Very dated. It's it. very dated. Like only the 2000s can be, I think. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like there's, I don't know what it is about just the 2000s in general that just dates itself we were, so terribly. We were all morally bankrupt at that point. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, at that point, really, this film, it seems to understand that it's trying to deliver on gore and not a whole lot else. It doesn't take itself seriously at all. Right. It and moves it, at a, well... I, I guess it it moves itself at a pace where they are trying to figure out stuff and there's kills sprinkled out, but I found a lot of it just boring. It's, yeah, it's point. boring. The acting is really bad. It's it's uh, stupid. It's <laughs> uh, it's it's insulting in in some of its uh, plot devices and how convoluted it is. And you know, as a as a fan of. Uh, or a former fan of Supernatural, I will not say that Jensen Ackles himself is a bad actor, but he's not good in this. <laughs> he's not good in this. Um, I don't think anybody's good in this. And at a certain point, they start trying to really make the viewer believe that Axel is the killer. I'd never buy that at all because he's the police chief and he's investigating. And we see lots of things of him by himself with nobody else investigating the deaths <laughs> right so yeah. if he was the killer he would not be doing that he would not have sent himself <laughs> oh, a yeah, box that's the thing, with right? somebody's heart in it <laughs> perfect but are, alibi but they are trying so hard at a certain point to really point the finger at axel and like it's definitely axel and it's just not and i never bought that it was and so the reveal at the end is that fucking Jensen Ackles has split personalities based off of his trauma from almost being murdered by uh, Harry Hole, Harry Warden, uh, whatever, more <laughs> more than once, and so that he has taken on Harry Warden's personality and that he shifts between the two, so that he has been the killer all along, which right, which, which, which we all called in the yeah, first ten yeah. minutes of the movie. And it was a problem, too, because there is that scene where he's locked in that little, like, gated room in and the mineshaft, and I was just like... And he's no looking way. at Harry Warden, and then they, like, stand up together, and remember, I said, I was like, I was like, oh, it's him, he's hallucinating a split personality right. of himself. But then they have it where Harry Warden... Uh, like twist something to lock him in that room. It's like, oh god, if it's and he him did now, it himself. Yeah, well, yeah, he did it himself. Exactly. That's so 
so dumb. It's dumb. It's extremely stupid. And then, so they have a fight in the mine, like him, Sarah, and Axel. In another way, they almost try and do the same thing, the duel between both of them. Right. It's not very exciting, though. It's not. And then Axel uh, shoots, like, a tank of something, of, I guess, methane or oxygen or whatever, behind Jensen Ackles, and it explodes. Right, but first we have them recreating the shot where he's going around the the mine shaft breaking the lights. Oh, which doesn't make sense, but there are lights on the other Other side side of the mine shaft. Did you guys notice, too, they did that really stupid thing where for a split, like, just half a second, every time he would actually break one of the light bulbs, he would be, he would, like, be wearing the... The, the, the Harry Warden. The Harry outfit. Warden, yes. and it would just be for, like, a second. It's like, we don't need that. Yeah, we don't right. need you're not, that. You're not the exorcist. Calm down. But, yeah, there's lights on the <laughs> yeah. other side of the mine tunnel, so it's not <laughs> it's really... It's, it's not like really better, making... better cycle on back. <laughs> <laughs> it just walks away. Yeah, <laughs> it's not really making off. anything any darker... Yeah, and it would have been great if he's he's swinging from both ends, <laughs> <laughs> just flailing wildly he's down the hallway, spinning in a circle, double t- <laughs> double handed, fucking yeah. So yeah. so the, he shoots Axel shoots the tank, and there's a big explosion, and it's supposed to be like, oh okay, whatever, that's the end of it. Well, one thing I want to mention <laughs> before that is we have the longest sequence where uh, Sarah Jamie King has the gun. And can't decide who's the killer. Right. And just stands there for a solid five minutes while the two fight and, like, seriously injure each other. Well, yeah, like... Well, yeah, and Jensen Eccles stabs Axel with, with, <laughs> with a, a pickaxe. pickaxe. Yeah. And she's just there. She has a gun. She gets shot. Yeah, she's him. just watching it all happen. Right. Uh, well, I guess should we talk about the, the really stupid reveal that it's Jensen Ackles all along? Oh, where, God. like, he, we see from his perspective, and we see Harry Warden, like, walking up behind Sarah, and Jensen Ackles is like, he's right there! You gotta shoot him! You gotta shoot him! He's right there! Sarah, you've got a gun! He's right there! He says he he says he's right there, like, a dozen times. I felt times. bad for Jensen to have to act out that scene. I know! And then, and then Axel and Sarah, like, there's nobody there. And then it's like, dun, dun, dun. Go, Only whoa. he can see him. <laughs> like, they nobody go back called everything, that shit. Everything. And they have to show him taking the mask off after every, every single kill, kill he does, yep. which is dumb. Which is we dumb. didn't like, need that. Like, we, get, we get it. He's the killer. We get also, it. Also, why are you doing that? Why are you taking your mask off after every kill? Is it because that's when he's not Harry Warden I at that point? Know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> We're supposed to believe that he went himself and found Harry Warden's unmarked grave right, in which the I, woods. How did he know? How did he know that? And dug, it, and dug up his body and moved the body somewhere oh, and yeah. took the, and the took, body. It, no it doesn't make any sense so we're supposed to believe that Jensen Ackles has been killed in the explosion like they're taking away Axel and it seems like he's gonna be okay even though he's been impaled on a pickaxe like in his guts so he's probably very much gonna die and then we see like all the firefighters there and one of them comes out like limping and he removes his mask and it's Jensen Ackles oh, God. a totally unsinged 
like not even like his eyebrows burned, not even blackened a little bit, just like totally clean faced, even though he (laughs) got hit by an explosion that he was standing like three feet from. And also, why did he take his mask off around all of those (laughs) other firefighters? Like, you are not safe. You are not safe. Like, and and then roll credits. Uh, Yes. Yeah. At least this movie. Fuck this movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I brought up the plot synopsis on IMDb to refresh my memory a little bit, and it's definitely written by a 13-year-old. Oh, okay. I want to read some highlights from oh, this because do. it's please incredible. Do. Recapping the uh, introductory hospital scene massacre. Not long after, we see Sheriff Burke, Tom Atkins, and one of his deputies touring the hospital massacre scenes. And then in parentheses it says, makes the Saw movies look like a lassie film. <laughs> <laughs> what a comparison! <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, oh. Like a lassie film. And then uh, another one uh, that woman is uh, walking out naked to the truck trucker dude. As Tom tries to shut them out, Irene and the trucker finish up. Irene, completely naked, starts waxing philosophic about Valentine's Day and the Romans. Short version, the males were randomly assigned secret sex slaves for the next year by pulling the girl's name out of a hat. (laughs) Dot, 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 dot. Or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I did not get that vibe from the story at all. (laughs) And then uh, another great one. At the ending, Harry isn't there and Axel realizes he is there. Inside Tom. And we now see Tom digging up Harry's body and taking off the outfit after doing the killings and attacking Irene. And seeing Harry in the mirror. And in parentheses it says, make your inevitable fight club comparisons now. Whoa. Wow, oh nobody's doing that. <laughs> no god. one. Yeah. Yeah, this is the this is the new oh, fight club. Oh my god. Also, yeah, like why is he wearing that outfit? That's it's probably rotten. It doesn't none of this makes any sense. Yeah. Not at all. This god. like I'm not surprised that uh fucking uh Stone Cold Steve Trucker is the one who wrote this movie because he he looks like he looks like it. absolutely um should we fucking write this garbage yes. and move on yeah, just go uh all i can say is it makes saw look like a lassie film <laughs> i didn't know those yeah um, that's the best way yeah to i'm gonna it. give it a one and a half i've seen worse remakes but man oh man was this convoluted and bad and just kind of sleazy as a whole like the 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 callbacks they had felt heavy-handed and the 3D shots are super dated. There was some bad CGI and just overall not worth checking out. Well, Ben, I think you're being generous. One pod, Eugene? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm going to have to give a one pod as well. There Hey, as I said, the general public who don't really care about how effective a horror movie is, I'm sure that you could turn your brain off to this and just be like, oh, yeah, the fucking uh, coal mines is cool. (laughs) And for me, not worth it. Even when I thought that it would be something like Piranha 3D where it sort of tries to 
play up. Which is a uh, much better film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Where the exaggeration of it is played to its uh, its strengths. This movie never hits any high points with its absurdity. So It takes itself too seriously to be properly campy. Yes. Yeah. That is the problem. So, so. that gives My Bloody Valentine 3D an average rating of 1.2 pods. Fuck this movie. Let's talk about something <laughs> better. Yes. Yes. And yes. so we, we, uh, we have a great... Final film to discuss. Could and not this, agree more. Yes, yeah. and this was my first time seeing it. I had um, never watched it before, only ever heard about it. The movie we are talking about is Misery, Stephen King's Misery. Yes. Rob Reiner's Stephen King's <laughs> Misery. <laughs> yes. Directed by Rob Reiner, came out in 1990, an adaptation of the acclaimed Stephen King novel. Um, which I read in high school and really, really enjoyed. And uh, I've seen this movie a couple of times, and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah this so. movie's probably best known for uh, Kathy Bates' breakout role in yes. it. And honestly, one of the best parts of the movie. Oh, she absolutely. She, she, did, she won an Oscar for this. For this yes, movie. Which is oh, impressive wow. because usually horror movies get snubbed at the Oscars. Yes. And well, she, she there won was a best different leading time actress. Yeah. This is still, I mean, it's by a bigger director. One of the reasons why Rob Reiner was chosen because he did the adaptation of Stand By Me. Yeah. And so that was enough for Stephen King to. Well, let that him was. That was Stephen King actually refused to sell the film rights to this novel unless uh, Rob Reiner would direct right. it. Which, he's a great director. He's made a whole bunch of fantastic movies, I, not even horror films. I mean, The Princess Bride, This is Spinal Tap, When Harry Met Sally. I think I, it's a good movie. I love the shit out of Stand By Me. Like, it's, I. Yeah. Um, I, I can. And totally see why Stephen King wanted Rob Reiner to adapt this, and I think he did a great job. Um, it's relatively faithful to the novel, yeah. which I like a lot. Um, well, it seems like the, I mean, the whole premise itself and the setting it takes place in, it seems like it's easy enough to translate into film. Yeah. Yes, it doesn't. It's nothing convoluted it like yeah. it, or it's <laughs> yeah. nothing crazy. So the basic premise is uh, novelist Paul Sheldon, played by James Kahn, is in a car accident in a blizzard in Colorado after finishing the first draft of his newest novel. And he is rescued by Annie Wilkes, who's played by Kathy Bates, who claims to be his number one fan. She is sort of nursing him back to health in her house, but he quickly realizes that she is incredibly mentally unstable and very overly attached to him. So this is, a, I think, a very suitable film for our Valentine's episode because this is, a, this is a Love Hurts film for yes. sure. Right. So to give some context, he is uh, primarily a, like a romance novel writer, sort of like a pulpy romance writer that he's done this series uh, based around this woman named Misery, uh, who Kathy Bates really relates to. So at the point where he's in the accident, he has his new manuscript that he's just finished, but it's also at the same time the latest Misery book has just come out. So yeah, she's she's reading his new manuscript, which is a totally unrelated story, 
and yeah, she she gets offended by the by the vulgarity in it. Right, and that's when we start to see the cracks in her character because first we see she's an obsessive fan. She's obviously infatuated by James Caan, but it's in that moment when she starts talking about um, the curse words and the obscenity. She starts to raise her voice and just she got the crazy eyes. <laughs> she yeah. starts to really show more of the menace that's hiding behind her. Right. And at a certain point, she gets his new misery novel. She loves it until she gets to the end when he kills off the misery character because he's trying to move on and pursue other artistic projects. He doesn't want to be... He doesn't it, want to be the misery guy. He doesn't want to be the misery guy. He doesn't want to be pigeonholed into these, like, pulpy romance novels. Which I like that little setup. They begin uh, after the car crash. They do a flashback of him talking to his agent about killing off Who's Misery. played by uh, Lauren Bacall. Yes, yeah. that's right. Rest and in peace. He, he mentions that killing off Misery, but then when he's in the house... You know, I well, it took me a second to make that connection. It's like, okay, she's a huge fan of him, but oh crap, she's about to find out that Misery was killed off, and right. that's really going to put her over the edge. Yeah. And it does, because she goes into his room in the middle of the night in a rage and starts shaking his bed. And like <laughs> smashing stuff. Yeah. He's, uh, we didn't mention, he's totally crippled. He was yes. by the car accident. One of his arms is broken and both of his legs are broken. Yes, so he's ugh, very gross detail we see. Yeah, he's totally totally reliant on her and she tells him she'll take him to the hospital like when the blizzard clears and the phone lines are back up or whatever she'll get an ambulance out there but she doesn't she she is like she has kidnapped him and when she discovers that he has killed off misery she forces him to burn his new manuscript buys him a typewriter and basically forces him to write a new misery novel where he brings her back to life yes and the this thing is... i love about the storyline so much is it feels super self-reflexive with stephen king oh yeah. I, around the time you know he was being pigeonholed as the horror guy right he was the uh pulpy horror guy that put out a book or two a year i feel like he wanted to branch out i know he did those high fantasy books in the late 80s that didn't really do High fantasy super well. with that stuff like Your Highness. <laughs> um, well, and I think it also has a lot to do with his substance abuse at the yes. time as well. He yes. has come out in recent years and said that misery is about his struggle with substance but abuse. But I like that... That Annie, um, that Annie Wilkes is the, is the personification of of drugs, yeah. right? But I, I, I also do think there's probably way, as him looking at his fans. Too. I think so too. Well, he said that she's basically a, a complete amalgamation of like all of his crazy fans that he's ever met. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I, I'm sure he attracts a lot of weirdos. Oh, for sure. Oh, for writes. sure. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and the whole movie really is just set in this room that James Con is uh, bedridden. The only other story we get outside of it is this sheriff. The elderly <laughs> sheriff. The elderly Buster. sheriff named Buster, who we learn when Lauren Bacall is trying to find um, find out where James Conn went. He's like, yeah, I'm basically, I do fucking everything in this town. He's <laughs> yeah, like the, the little, sheriff. And sleepy like little man. Colorado mountain town. Right. We see him trying to find out where he went. They discover his car in the snow, no body, 
and he feels something is up because either he escaped and died in the woods, but on the car door, we see it's been crowbarred open, which is how Annie Wilkes got to James Conn in the first place. And so he decides he's going to take it upon himself to solve this case. Right. And- <laughs> Everybody else assumes, which is, I guess, shitty police work on, like, the FBI's, uh, like, part because Buster, this old like country bumpkin sheriff, is the only one who notices that the car door has been pried open right. from the outside. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh yeah, he crawled out and he for sure like died in the woods in the blizzard. Like we'll probably find his body in the like first spring thaw or whatever. And Buster's like, well no, because like somebody obviously pulled him out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so And so he is on the case. For the most part it's yeah, it's all central location in Annie's house and more specifically in Paul Sheldon's room right, where he's which being is held. Great. There have been, as, as we mentioned, Don't Breathe succeeds in that same sort of concept, just uh-huh. one central location. Uh, just last year, Split did the same thing as well. What I like so much about the centralized location thing is that we don't see any of the rest of Annie's house until... Uh, like, she leaves to go to town one day, and James Conn, like, makes a lockpick out of a bobby pin and, like, breaks out to investigate the rest of the house and try to find a way to escape. So it's really, like, we don't know anything about what's happening other than what James Conn does, except, of course, for the stuff with Buster's investigation outside of everything. But in terms of Annie and where they're at... And everything like that, we learn things at the same rate that James Conn does. Right, and I, I love, think it's really effective buildup. I love in one of the first uh, moments he tries to escape. Annie Wilkes has just discovered misery was killed off. She tells him, "I need to spend some time away from you." I, I love this in movies when a character has some sort of injury and they really play it up. I, oh, yeah. I think that stuff is just super effective when they really drag out just how much pain they're going through. Because right when he crawls out of the bed, he you know he goes hands first and his legs slam down and he ugh, you know he's sweating. He's got you know the the poop face going <laughs> yeah. on. And no, you you hurt along yeah, with him. You, you definitely feel it. Right, which, it's like it really they do an awesome job of like really putting you into his character you know like you suffer with him. Yeah, yeah. James Conn does an incredible job of making you feel how visceral his pain is. Yes. It builds up into if anyone has heard about misery. Everybody knows one, the one yes, scene. Yes the one scene. The which, hobbling scene. Yeah. yeah. And oh man, I, I don't know if we want to get into that immediately right now, but well, just- we can we can build into it. He eventually Annie discovers that he has been leaving his room. Oh yes, because yeah. that's when we learn more about her character. We ha- we get little hints that there's something that happened in her past before. She mentions being on the witness stand, and she so. mentions that she was married, and that after her husband left her or whatever, that like she that's when she really fell in love with uh, Paul Sheldon's books because they were like her her comfort. The misery books were like her comfort. So she's sort of been vicariously falling in love with Paul all of these years. And now that she has him, she's really like becoming infatuated more so with just than with just his books, but like with him as a person too. They, they give her character heart. It's not 
just that she's a crazy deranged fan. You see that it's a sadness yeah. that makes her act yeah. this way. You, you kind of feel sorry for her right. at times. And she, you know? she pulls out a gun at one point and she's like, I'm going to fucking kill myself one of these days, <laughs> right. basically. And you know, I mean, she's not a good person for what she's doing, but you see that it comes from she's a, she's legitimately like mentally unwell yes like oh, yeah. and and but kathy as, bates does a great job of flip-flopping <laughs> between that like really uh like really sweet like caring i don't want to say country bumpkin because she's really not but kind of like simple homely. homely like she lives on a farm you know she has her pig named oh Misery. yes yes she just pig. spends you know she likes laying in bed watching game shows and you know she's just like an average person and flip-flopping between that and this absolute like insane like rage beast <laughs> right, that yeah. she becomes because you know? we we learn that before uh, the events of this movie that she was a nurse who uh, murdered children is that In- right infants yeah, yes. yeah. and and right. it's, i think it's implied that she murdered her husband as well right yeah. cuz she has a whole clipbook of all these as any good crazy person does you know a little i know i love that she she has a scrapbook and on the front oh, yeah, it says it, it says memory lane <laughs> yeah, right. and he he takes it at some point as flipping through it and it's all like the the news clippings of like her countless murders that she's right. done you know which i forgot how they explain why she isn't in jail at that point i that isn't terribly like important that isn't important for how, yeah she how she, she managed to get out. off on a technicality or yeah, something something, yeah. something of that um, she's freddy krueger who wasn't murdered after the whole thing so right, she's right right she gets to go on during this whole thing the way that the detective goes about his investigation is pretty ridiculous yeah. it is but it's funny <laughs> i think yeah it's, it's, it's pretty funny it's fun yeah. i think it, i think it makes sense for his character as this kind of like sheriff who doesn't really have anything to do That's because true. he's yeah. in this like little like, small mountain town yeah. and there he, don't seem to be a lot of leads and so it's just sort of like a hey i'll do I'll do whatever to try and solve it. Well, right. His his wife asks at a certain point, like, he goes out and buys all of Paul Sheldon's misery books. There's like eight of them or something. And he's like, well, if I can't find the man, like, I want to find out, like, who he was by, like, reading what he wrote. So he starts reading, like, all of these super uh, pulpy romance novels. Yeah, it totally fits the... uh sheriff who's never actually experienced any crime <laughs> right he's never sheriffed before yeah. it's it seems more like this investigation is sort of like a hobby for him more so than anything else right he says something it's like well if i can't figure out what happened to him i can at least find out about him right and uh and so he starts reading all of these misery novels and at one point he writes down a line from one of them because it like clicks it's something like uh um there's a higher there's a higher justice than that of man and I will answer to him or yeah. something like that and so he like reads that one of the books and writes it down and then later we see why he did that is because it made him remember something and he goes back and looks at the uh news clippings from Annie's trial and sees that she quoted that misery thing at her trial Okay. And yeah. so <laughs> And so that makes him think that makes that puts her on his radar, right, I should yeah. say. 
Which is all just because then that also means that these people in the town, because uh, what also sparks it is that he sees her in town yelling at some dude. And so he's like, hey, you know, that people yelling at each other, that's suspicious. And so that's when he starts reading up about her as well. But at that point, that's when he starts to get clues on what exactly happened to James Conn's character. Right. And uh, another, just in terms of convenience, how Annie Wilkes discovers that James Conn has been wandering around the house. Rolling is, around the yeah, house. Yeah, rolling around, that's right. He's got a wheelchair uh, so he can sit up and write at the typewriter Annie Wilkes gave him. But he drops a penguin and he puts it up and she comes into his room when... She finds out, and she's like, my penguin always points, like, due, due south. south. And it's like, why? <laughs> what? Well, I mean, she's got this table full of these little ceramic figurines. Right, and, they're, so- and they're all facing the exact same direction. I mean, it's it's incidental, I think, that it's due south. That just sort of goes into and it was just, her It was one of those, like, one but, of those great conveniences. Because she already mentions the flip book, and so she could have right. just like noticed that was out of place. But yeah, that was just um, one of those, hey, he got caught. That's not really important. But what is important is what it's happens to him. I, I felt like it added to the kookiness of her character. Yeah. That's true. Yep, Very no, well. it's like she's and so if specific I, if on I recall, If I recall correctly, there's something similar in, in the novel yeah? like, about okay. that. That's how he she catches him. Something like that. It's been a long time. Yes, but because of his... <laughs> she gives a great comparison to it um, about if a... Was it like a or a coal or like a miner tries to steal the diamonds rather than killing him because that's like um, then he can't work right right it's like trash in the Chevy when the brake lines go or something along those lines just a really cold like indirect statement on how you treat people and she's like well they would hobble them and so she puts the block between his legs and they only show one foot getting hit but it's more than enough yeah she that visual breaks right his ankles with yeah. a sledgehammer yeah you see the swing and it hits <laughs> apparently apparently kathy bates had a really really hard time with that scene because of how violent it was apparently the, the entire build-up to them filming that she just like sat on the corner of the set crying for like wow, an hour holy shit like and it's it's visceral it's nasty yeah. like yeah because this is her at her coldest that we've seen in the movie. And that's, that is one of the things that they change from the book is she still hobbles him, but in the book she cuts off one of his feet with an axe. That's crazy. That's um, and so in this one she shatters both of his ankles with a sledgehammer. And what makes it wilder is right after he does it, she proclaims, like, I love you so much. Right. Which she's makes the whole, it so much more twisted. Everything she's doing, it's like it's for his own good. Right. You know, she makes him burn his the only copy of the manuscript of his new novel for his own good and stuff yeah she has a twisted sense of what's right and that makes it so much creepier yeah you know and this definitely is the most iconic scene of the movie it's the one that everyone always remembers and i think that's because it's so visceral oh yeah and because uh kathy bates's character is played up 
in such a slow burn to that point. Yeah. That when it happens, it packs such a punch. That well, because really she doesn't do anything really violent to him throughout the movie at that point. At worst, she's like slammed a book on his feet or shaken the bed, but nothing to physically handicap him. Right. Because, you know, she's bought him a wheelchair and stuff. So we're supposed to, you know, we're seeing him that she's more of just a kidnapper. But now she's a torturer, too. Right. So. I, I really enjoy his uh, his plan to escape that he's building up that doesn't end up working out at all. He's He's been, like, not actually taking his pain pills and hiding them. He takes all the powder out of the capsules, and he's going to drug her while they're having dinner one night. Right. And uh, all this buildup is really great. He finally, like, he's at the table, like, she's got the wine poured, and he's like, oh, if we're going to do a toast right, like, we need some candles. So she gets up to leave, and he dumps it into her drink, and we're like, okay, this is finally going to pay off. And then right as she's, like, striking the match to light the candle she knocks over her wine right and you look at his face and he just and it's goes, just oh. like all of these days or maybe even weeks of planning and like working up to this moment to execute his plan and just a total accident just makes it go out the window right and the fact that he was acting so nice and now he's like oh crap that happens prior to the hobbling scene correct i believe i believe so, so. Yes. yeah it does Actually, I don't remember because not. at that it's, point, it's that's the, when he finishes the... It's on the completion of the of the new Misery book. So, right. yeah, maybe it is after the hobbling. Yeah, we get we get a couple uh, yeah, montages of him writing the, um, writing the book, and then also he's doing lift exercises with the, with type the typewriter. Writer. Trying to get swole. <laughs> yeah, right, making sure he stays fit. Um, and I forget, does the sheriff come in... After he's already written the manuscript, or does uh, the sheriff come in and then he finishes the manuscript? Well, no, he's finished the manuscript and he uh, he burns it right in yes. front in front of her, right, and yes. she's freaking out, and so she's going to kill the two of them. Like he's she's got two bullets, one for him and one for her, and the sheriff shows up. And so she, like, puts him in the basement so the sheriff can, like, investigate the house. Right as the sheriff is getting ready to leave, uh, he hears something in the basement. And it's like, oh, he goes down there. He sees James Caan. Finally, he's going to be free. Like, something's going his way. Like, the sheriff has found him. And then he gets fucking shot from behind with a shotgun. Just, like, absolutely, absolutely cold wrecked. Oh no no no! I'm messing yeah, up. Yeah, that's I'm messing before, up the time. and that's then the, he says he convinces let me her. Live so I can I finish, can finish the, the book. Oh, that's yes, right. yes, yep. yes. That's there it. we go. I now messed we up got the timeline. It. He convinces her to not kill him, so to wait until after he's finished yeah, the new misery. The, the book. poisoning happens before the sheriff comes, right? And then the sheriff shows up, right? And then after that, that's we get right. That's the, right. Uh, final scene where he finally finishes the manuscript he's finishing it you know chapter by chapter and kathy bates is reading it and like anxiously wanting to know what happens next and he's like you'll see very soon and he finally finishes the final chapter that's right and brings her in he has you know a routine once he finishes 
novels where he s- smokes a single one cigarette. cigarette and has a single glass of Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. Yeah, as, as, <laughs> and he says in the movie. Which so is that's great. right. He he's like, oh, we'll go get another glass so we can toast together. And when she comes back with her glass, he sets the whole manuscript on yeah. fire. We should mention too that when he was in the basement about to get shot, he uh, snuck some lighter lighter fluid. fluid. Oh in yes, his pants that's right. That that's he dumps right. all over the manuscript. And as she's trying on her hands and knees, trying to put out the fire, he smashes her over <laughs> the head with the typewriter. And then they have a, a really uh, visceral sort of fight. Which is mostly them just rolling around on the ground, right, like, yeah. bashing each other. Yeah. Which culminates with, as she's about to kill him, she trips on something and falls and smashes her head on the typewriter. Oh, yes, yeah, that's And then right. falls on top of it. Right, and, and falls dies. on top of it. Oh, yeah. Um, what, I, what I like so much, what I'll mention about the camera work and what really helps make this movie really unsettling is there's so many like really tight close-ups especially on kathy bates like and always kind of from below so it's like she's looking down at you a little bit and she's really imposing and just like right well as we uh as i had mentioned while we were watching it kathy bates is the only woman i can realistically believe picking up james con in the snow and taking her back right right she's yeah well and that's and that's like there are a shitload of both actors and actresses who were asked to play these two parts before they finally settled on Kathy Bates and James Caan. Some of the some of the choices for actresses is like it just doesn't make any sense for the character. Because, hmm. like, I mean, in the book, too, like, Annie Wilkes is, like, a big, like, burly farm woman. You need you know? someone who's imposing. You need for somebody that who's physically Absolutely. imposing. And Kathy Bates has that, as well as the acting chops to really, like, flesh this character out. Like, she is, she's an imposing right. figure. You couldn't have a Laura Flynn Boyle play this right, role. Right, right. Like, and make like it you said, believable. Kathy Bates is one of the only actresses that I would by like manhandling James Conn. <laughs> right. Because he's, he's not a small dude, you know? No, like, no, he's not. He's tall. Like, he's not big, but he's tall. Like, yeah, she and she just like throws him over her shoulder. <laughs> um, should we get into ratings? I think, I think so. Yeah, well. because uh, at this point, after he's killed Annie Wilkes, we get the, you know, the epilogue. Yeah. We get a final scene of who he believes to be Annie Wilkes approaching him. It turns out to be a woman who just looks similar at and, a restaurant. Yeah, at a restaurant, waitress. yes. And she's like, "Oh, aren't you? Aren't you Paul Sheldon? I'm your number one fan." Yes, right. which is a, I think, a great way to uh, to end finish it, it. Yeah. and to also say it's like there are probably other people out there that love the. Yeah. And well, he's and he'll it. never he'll never get away from the experience, his, even though Annie Wilkes is dead. His newest book isn't about the killing because uh, Lauren Bacall, his agent, asks him. If he wants to write a book about um, it. Okay, right. Yeah, right, like right, a nonfiction right. book. And he's like, eh, I don't really know if I want to relive that experience. <laughs> Which I thought yeah. was a great way to end it, you know? Yeah, and like, then to have Kathy Bates approaching him and then, oh, it's just another person. It's like he's he's going to be living with that fear and living with right. her for the rest Which of his life. I, I'm glad it didn't do any Gerald's Game sort of thing for the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Like, And then I created a support group for my fans. <laughs> <laughs> for people who have been hobbled. I've yeah. gone to the diamond mines. <laughs> 
right. Well, uh, I'll I'll start with this one. I uh, I think this is a great adaptation, faithful to the spirit of the book, even the few things it changes. Rob Reiner did awesome on Stand by Me, and he did awesome on this. And uh, Kathy Bates is great, and James Caan is great. The build of tension is awesome. Uh, it's kind of a slow burn. It, it, there are a couple parts where it drags a little bit, but like it really uh, works its way up to uh, a very exciting finale. Um, I'm a big fan of this movie. I'm going to give it four out of five pods. Well, Rob Reiner is definitely a hit-or-miss director nowadays. Yes. Back in the 80s and the 90s, he had a killer run, and this is yet another example of it yeah what Misery is he even directed is recently? a great great slow burn it does not rely on any sort of jump scares the gradual shift of kathy bates's character from humanistic fan to this monster she's complex is, she's a complex villain. is is a great growth over the movie and really Warren's, you know, the stardom of Kathy Bates. Absolutely. The breakout stardom. Absolutely. Of her in this role. I also love how, you know, self-reflexive it feels. It feels like Stephen King kind of writing a fuck you to all his rabid fans, in a way. <laughs> and I, I really respect that a lot. It's a really solid movie. I would give it four out of five pods as well. I think I'm on board with you guys all over there. I'm going to give it a four and a half, though, because not seeing this movie before, I was really surprised by the depth that they give Kathy Bates, how well-paced the movie is, considering it's all just in one location. For uh, Never once during this movie did I feel bored. It, uh, it moves along really well. Really great. Really great movie. All right. Well, that gives Misery an average rating of 4.2 pods. Um, yeah, I could not recommend this movie more. It's, uh, it's great. We do not have a game this week because we're just going to go ahead and fucking put this Cloverfield business to rest. Finally, right. That we've been talking about for fucking weeks now. Now that Cloverfield Paradox has been released, we're putting it to bed. Next episode will be our Cloverfield special. We'll be talking about the original Cloverfield, Dan Trachtenberg's 10 Cloverfield Lane, and the Cloverfield Paradox. So uh, no no one picking movies this time. Trying to stay as current as possible, even though by the time the episode's released, it'll probably be old news. It'll, but... it'll, be, it'll be a little bit of old news, but it'll give everybody a chance to check the movie out. Yeah, watch uh, it before the episode. Watch it before the episode. So you can hear our commentary without it spoiling anything. That's right. Well, I guess that about brings our Valentine's episode to a close. If you like the show, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as well as anywhere else that you may find your podcasts. Um, follow the show on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and Facebook as well. You can follow my personal Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome if you give a shit about things that I like. Uh, yeah, don't go breaking my heart. Uh, follow me at Mr. Sheets on Twitter. Eugene, are you still juggling? Are you still a <laughs> juggler for hire? Well, I had a, an issue. There's there's juggling unions. They didn't like that oh, I wasn't a part yeah, of the, it. The they, jugglers union. I forgot very about. I forgot about that uh, that Incredibly. prestigious organization. I was at a birthday party and they crashed it. They they beat me up in front of all the kids. I can't say whether I am still juggling or not, but I'll say if you go down to 
72nd and Elmhurst, I'll be there. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Juggling or otherwise. I hope we don't have anybody in the Jugglers Union of America who listens to this show. They don't know where they don't know where I am in the Jua. (laughs) The Jugglers Union of America. The Jua. Yeah. Um, the show is produced by Ben and edited by me, and Ben is the artist behind our entrance and exit music. Uh, that's still a fucking wrestler thing that I don't know why I keep doing. Uh, <laughs> well, we hope you have just a fantastic Valentine's Day with your significant others. We will be spending time alone no. with our with our thoughts. No. Uh, <laughs> check back in uh, in a couple of weeks for. Fucking Cloverfield. I'm Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Ben Sheets. And I'm Eugene Lundeen. I hope you all have a fantastic romantic evening. It is Valentine's!